You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So I've been asked to introduce these to this conversation series, this, these two interviews, and to be honest, it's quite difficult because the, this concept of island life and the, the topic and the, the opportunities and conversations that have sprung up from it are um, quite immense and it's hard to bring it down into a simple format. Um, and it's quite emotional. Um, so in, I'll try my best to do that um, and give a little bit of personal history and background into why that might be difficult or emotional. Um, so the, there's two people who I'm speaking to today. One doesn't want to be named because um, he's nervous about potentially revealing um, certain stories or information around the um, crayfishing industry and the fishing industries on the Abrolhos Islands that um, some people might not want to know. Um, and I met him through a friend of mine who I am happy to name. Her name is Amber. And we met, me and Amber met on the island of Wajima earlier this year in, in March during the Perth Festival. And I've just got back from spending a few days on Wajima and when I got back I found out that I have ancestors buried there um, or relatives. Um, and I'm not sure how many people who are listening to this, probably not many know the history of Wajima, but it's a very dark history that is now used as a it's a very dark history that was a it was a prison island where a lot of aboriginal people were taken from their homelands all across western australia and brought over there to um be imprisoned and eventually die um and the treatment was sickening um and it's now used as a holiday destination for um tourists um and there's still unmarked graves and burial sites that haven't been moved um, and very little progress has been made in terms of some, some recently. Um, primarily, I think that the, someone apologised, the head of the Rottlist Island Authority, I believe, apologised to the descendants, um, but there was very little publicity about it. But, yeah, that's a really complex... I have a complex history with that place particularly... Um, I grew up there as a teenager, going there as going there as a fat, you know, as a as a child with my family and having holidays and swimming in the ocean and going fishing and I learned to ride a bike there. I still remember it was a red little BMX bike with trainer wheels. Um, I remember when the trainer wheels came off, and I remember my dad holding me and 
letting me ride along without it. Um, so it holds a lot of special memories in the immediate sense to my life. Um, and then when I was a teenager and I was going to private school in Western Australia in Perth um, and I'd go over there with fam- like with family and then we would, us, you know, the, the teenagers would all get together and we'd sneak booze and get people to buy us alcohol and we'd go off into the dunes at Pinky's Beach and have, you know, clumsy early sexual mis- mis- misadventures all completely intoxicated and... Um, I mean, without saying that that's, you know, that's my life, so it's not, I'm not going to say it's tragic, but there is a kind of definitely some deep things to explore about the way that we, um, the context of that, of having groups of teenagers learning to relate to each other through an alcohol fueled um, haze on an island that was up until very recently a, um, you know, in a wider context, obviously, um, a burial ground on a side of incredible um, tragedy and sadness and that hasn't been resolved um, and I guess that's why this 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 concept of island life has sort of hit me quite strongly because it's like wow that's like so much of my identity is caught up in this in this place in how it's used now how it was used then how it's changed um, how I you know f- fell in love with people for the first time, had, you know, early sexual experiences, got drunk for the first time, made friends who I'm still friends with and family friends and had all, all lots of beautiful experiences too. I mean, not that they're not beautiful, but they're, they're, they're complicated looking back on them. Um, and, you know, I always knew it as Roto, as most people do, Rottnest Island. Um, and there's some progress being made towards calling it Wajamat, which is what it should be called. Um, but even that's that's taking off pretty slowly. Um, but the, yeah, the experience that I had earlier this year um, and when I was over there with my friend Amber, um, after having been on the, I guess, the sort of emotional journey that I've been on in the last few years in terms of, you know, more deeply reconnecting with um, my culture and people and history and process of truth-telling and feeling out all of those kinds of things, which is, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to do so in the, in the capacity that I have. Um, and it's only a, a minor thing, uh, you know, well, not a minor thing, but it's a, the beginning of a journey, I guess. Um, and, yeah, I had the opportunity to kind of come back to revisit Wajima in the context of listening to the Noongar stories of that place um, through Uncle Barry Maguire and, and others during this um, series, during this, this artwork at the Perth Festival called Witness Stand by Tim and Maddie Flynn. Um, and I was doing back of house and so I listened to the shows every night and my friend Amber was doing front of house and there was three or four shows a week and we would go over to Rottnest and we'd or go over to Wajamup and we'd stay there for a night and um, then come back and then go back on the ferry each day to participate in this show and set it up. And so we sat there every night on, on this island at the western end, um, sorry, the eastern end of the island, 
sitting on the sand, listening to Noongar stories about this place. Um, and they really, they got deep into us and we could feel them resonate and they were very moving and very sad and, and also very beautiful and amazing, an amazing work that I'm incredibly grateful to have been able to be a, be a part of. Um, and me and Amber developed a friendship and it was interesting that she was then teaching at the school that I went to when I was, when I had my, all those other early experiences. When I guess the, the knowledge of that history, you know, I, I was aware of my Aboriginal um, ancestry and, and, and identity, but I didn't, I didn't identify as a teenager in the, not the culture that I was in, I was in, um, I didn't even really know what identification meant. I, I knew I was Aboriginal and, you know, I spoke about it, but I didn't know the history. I wasn't connected to it in a way that I could feel, I guess, that, that history of, of Wajamup. Um, I remember actually at one point um, on our year eight camp going over to Scotch with our house groups, meeting everyone for the first time. Um, so when I say I didn't identify, I did. Um, it sort of, I guess it kind of got squashed out of me a bit from five years of schooling because I remember in year eight, first week, Rottnest camp, and one of my, the boys in my house group was being racist and bad-mouthing Aboriginal people. And I warned him a few times and he didn't say, and he stopped. I think he was, you know, enjoying the provocation. Um, and I fucking launched myself at him in the bunk rooms and started like punching him, attacked him as a, you know, as effectively as a little 13 year old can. Um, and you know, all my housemates were a bit shocked by that. But by the time I left that school after, you know, endless attempts to try and sort of, or ask people nicely not to say the word boom or whatever, it just kind of, yeah. When you also, you know, as you get to know the people who, you know, some, when your friends are doing it, you're like, oh, I mean, I know these are good people. We are like, I feel their goodness. I don't know what they don't mean by it. This is just, it's just ignorance. But it's hard to sort of keep, you can't, it's hard to keep making enemies out of people who are doing that. And it's hard to keep that, you know, without the language or the culture around you or the support in that way, it can be very isolating. Um, and to the point where, you know, it's, it's also dangerous place you know it's a scary place in a lot of ways big old all boys school um you know it's a proper jungle so you got to be pretty staunch little warrior to be you know combat that the whole time and you know i wasn't i was uh i was only as yeah i guess because i started out like that in year eight but then yeah things change and being back in that place, I felt like I was a teenager again, experiencing, it was like some, like a time warp where I had gone back in time to sort of revisit my relationship with that place in, in the way that with, with, with the, the right, or uh, well, more closely with a, with a more right relationship. You know, if I'm think, thinking about the idea of being in right relationship with place, um, how I had grown up was not in right relationship with, with Wajima. And being there and hearing those stories and hearing that truth-telling um, 
and it was a very healing process and feeling yeah incredibly grateful to have that opportunity to do that um to be reconnected to that place in a way that's more meaningful i left school in year 10. <laughs> should have stayed yeah, were you down here or that was that up there up in so you grew up in Geraldton or like on the islands, like how and when, when we sort of started? I went there when I was seven, started going there. Yeah, right. So dad went back, he used to fish on the coast. Yeah. Um, so we started going there every school holidays, times in like other winter school holidays. We started going there. Yeah. And then I started working there for dad when I was 19. Yeah. So I did eight years to last most recently was this year with my brother-in-law. Yeah. Bottom fishing. What's bottom fishing? Uh, you go after all the reef fish. Okay. So jewfish, orchard grouper, whatever. Yeah. As opposed to the crayfish. Oh, the crayfish. Oh, yeah. You can't catch pelagics, but mostly uh, you can take two or three tuna or something. Oh, like the limit yeah. is that you can't. Okay. Yeah. The rest is just reef fish, fish yeah. that live on the bottom. So yeah, that's what I was doing last. Yeah, cool. What um, what about the octopus fishing? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's the most. Uh, mackerel's pretty hard. That's the most nuts fishing I've ever done. The octopus fishing. Yeah. Fucking crazy. What 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 makes it so gnarly? You pull your pots like a cray pot. Yeah. You have thirteen. We had thirteen hundred pots, so we'd cycle. Pull around 240 a day. So we, we pots or octopus? Pots. pots. So you'd cycle through and leave them on a two weeks. So you'd cycle through a week's worth yeah. and leave them for two weeks, type of thing. So like staggered them, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, so they sort of fish for two weeks. And then, yeah, it's it's a new fishery. Yeah. And it's just started up there five years ago, I think. It says it's sustainable, but it's not. Yeah. They, yeah, there's a lot of things about it. Like they got the MSC, apparently paid for it, which is the World Fishing Standard. Okay. For sustainability. Yeah, right. I was told they paid for it. Yeah. You put chlorine on the octopuses to get them out of the traps. To get them out of the traps once they're, once they're on the deck? Look, when the pot comes up, if the doors are shut, but generally the octopuses would live in the trap. Yeah. Because it's really picture. It doesn't go flat, but um, basically it's a big square that with a heap of ballast metal on the bottom. It has three trap doors. Yeah. So the Oki goes in and he'll pull on a rubber crab okay. and shuts the doors. Really? So it's just a, like they, what, so they hunt by sight kind of thing? They see the crab and then they pull on it if it's made of rubber. They don't need like rotting flesh or whatever. No, but we have a tuna pellet to attract as an attractant. Okay. A lot of the times they would attract fish and things and they'd grab the fish. Yeah. Um, they eat all sorts of shit, electric stingrays, anything. Anything that was in there. Um, also, the Ockies would generally just live in the trap. So they'd bring all their, I don't think they've even been studied that hard, but they'd have a lot of rocks and things in there which they hide underneath. Mm. 
So they bring a lot of rocks into the traps, which is about a 50 kilo trap individually. So if they're full of rocks, you've got to drag that down and tip it, run and stack it, stack the rope. You have whale weights on it, which is a weight attached to the rope, mm-hmm. which makes the line go down apparently to stop it entangling with whales. Yeah. But generally it hangs diagonally so the whales can swim over it still. Yeah. It's just a fishing standard yeah. type of thing. Um, because the doors are open, you get a big swell, which is common. Yeah. These pots fill up with either rocks about this big or sand. And once that pot hits the tipper as it comes over, yeah. that pot now weighs 100 kilos. Yeah, right. So you've got to try and pull that down, tip it up on this tipping mechanism. The like tipper, a, is this, so it's on like a crane or something? No, it no. comes up like, um, as the pot comes over, a tipper onto the side of the boat. Okay, so it's just like a little um, ledge that it slides onto kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it helps bring it over the side like a yeah. tray pot. Yeah. Then we have a table. We have to angle and twist it really bad. We have handles on the pot, pull it around to the to the little mini tipper in the table, tip it up, and if that's full of sand, which you could get, you might have a line of pots of fifty. Yeah. Every single one is full of sand. Yeah, you gotta right. go as quick as you can. Like full of sand and nothing else. Yeah. Generally, the ockies wouldn't be in the sand. You'd find dead ones. So then you got to get a hose and jam the hose in three trapdoors yeah and try and get it out so this sand then accumulates on the deck yeah right it could be up say this high fuck and then you've got to shovel that off again as quick as you can so you're sort of gambling you know, you can't see it from the outside you have to check every pot and every pot is there's a high likelihood that it's just full of sand generally yeah. generally yeah, um, yeah right a big swell certain areas a lot of octopuses like weedy bottom so that's yeah. where you find sand yeah right but the rocky bottom was the same. They really liked the rocky bottom, I noticed. But if they were full of rocks, you'd have a deck full of fucking rocks. And you're trying to walk over with a 50 kilo pot. And yeah. So I was doing it on my own because we were paid per cat, on our catch rate. Yeah. And uh, if we weren't catching, you weren't making money, so no one would do it. Yeah. But I live pretty frugal life so I don't need have any expenses so I kept doing it because I liked, liked it mm. but um, yeah we genuinely couldn't keep any other deckhands on the boat so I was doing it all by myself yeah right but there's also things come up in these pots like blue ringed octopuses electric stingrays and also um, cobblers stripy catfish what's a stripy catfish they're a little catfish that schools big thick schools so when they move they look like a big a bigger animal yeah but they have like cobblers so just like a bigger catfish poisonous spines yeah we wear i try to wear two gloves and stuff up my arms yeah because it's hot up there you get really hot in all your gear yeah but yeah generally the blue rings you wouldn't ever see them till till they stung you or it was on your outfit or on the pots or on the ground so yeah, you don't want to get bitten by one of those. No. Asphyxiate. I've had a couple of encounters with them. Yeah. Because um, on a cray boat, we never wear shoes. Uh, you don't have as much crap all over the deck. So there's one on my outfit. So I was walking around with that for a while. Shit. Fuck, so they really like stick on you. 
Yeah, they got a like a toxin sort of thing on them on the outside. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the octopuses were there. That's an electric stingray. It's like created 200 volts they can give you, and they were eating these things. These the octopus eating. So them. they must have an immunity or a technique. That's a cobbler, poisonous catfish. Yeah. They must have. They're highly intelligent. So this is all stuff that comes out of the inside of the cray pot, so the octopus. The octopus pots. Yeah, yeah so octop- octopus, octopus pot, pot, sorry. Oh, yeah. See the three doors? Oh, uh, yeah. And that's full of rocks. You can see how high up the table <laughs> that goes. Yeah, fucking hell. So this is like all the, this is, they just like collect these as part of the, yeah. like. If you're there for two weeks. Accumulating treasure. Two octopus. weeks, yeah. But if you're the pot's sitting there for two weeks, going through weeks of different swells, those pots fill up full of shit. Yeah. And how many, like, how many octopus do you get in, um, like, if, you, if you're pulling 250 a week or whatever? Uh, two full, two a, day, a day, a day, sorry. So you try and do five days a week, so yeah. whatever that is over the week. But how, how, what percentage of those 240 um, are you going to find? It really depends on the time of year. Like, January, February is when they seem to pick up. The rest, of it, it was really hit and miss. Yeah. November was, I can't even remember what we, our best. Maybe 300 kilo is yeah, the right. best we did. Yeah, I can't even remember, man. Like, yeah, well, it, it wasn't great. Was uh, biggest, maybe two or three kilo, maybe okay. something like that. Yeah. Fuck, I can't even remember, man. Yeah. So maybe wasn't. like between 50 and 100 to the buckies. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. A good day, maybe more. Yeah. 200. Yeah. Two, 250. Yeah, right. But that's the sand. So you can see it goes all the way up the table, and I'd washed half that off before I took a photograph. Yeah, right. So the deck of the boat was like this, and it gives the boat a list, so it's pretty dodge. Yeah. So you're on a slippery, angled, moving, boats wet platform. Boats starting to go like that, yeah. listing. And you got to do this as fast as you possibly can. Covered in rocks and sand and surrounded by stinging animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this young guy is from a North Island family. Yeah, right. And he was learning to fish, so I was teaching him. The guy in the photo. And he's a tough little prick, and he yeah. just, he couldn't get up. Yeah, and right. He was just sitting there. Yeah. It was brutal. We had a lot of cray deckies would come, which was considered really, a really tough job. Yeah. And broke a lot of my mates. Yeah. Couldn't hack it. True. But I was drinking lots of piss and smoking to get through it, you know? The only yeah. way you could do it. Yeah, numb yourself a bit. Drinking Red Bull cans and shit like that. But we just did long hours, like anywhere from midnight to six in the evening. Yeah. And we do overnight trips to the islands. But yeah, we were doing it cruisy too. A lot of the other boats were crazier than us. Yeah. They just fish all night. And what was the thing you said about chlorine? using chlorine to get it out um, of the pumps? Well, generally they say it's salt, but we were told to put chlorine, so you squirt the octopus with chlorine and he'll come out. Yeah. You can't pull him out, you won't, you'll never get him out. Yeah. But I'm sure salt will work. Yeah. Because they sell it as a, not a cook product, a lot of it's sold as sashimi, so I don't know how, how healthy that is. Yeah, right. You're burning the octopus alive. Yeah. Like, pure chlorine. Yeah. Yeah, which is a pretty gnarly chemical. But that's, um, yeah, not talked about. <laughs> I would imagine that would be kept pretty hush-hush. Uh, yeah. Um, but that's seafood, you know. Yeah. 
yeah, well, I'm, you know, as I, as I said, I'm not going to, like, just realise I might just try and chuck this on. Yeah, man. I'm trying to expose the... The other thing about it was, was that much gear in the water. You have a lot of lost equipment. Yeah. So we it was dropping shit onto the. Well, it's all plastic. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it disappears. It's going to take a long time to break down. Octopus fishing industry's gone like right up up there because of the massive drop off in the, obviously the crate like the Chinese market for the crayfish is 98% of the exports or whatever. Yeah. And that's like um, pretty much all gone at the moment, right? Um, I don't know a huge lot about this subject other than working in the factory and the export has gone, but they still go in there. Mm. It goes through pretty, pretty certain it goes through Taiwan to yeah. China now. Yeah. They just say it, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that's what this, this article was saying yeah. through, they were calling it grey channels. Yeah. Um, it's always gone through the back door, I've been told. Yeah. But China are still getting it, but not, mustn't be paying. They were paying a fucking ridiculous price for it, though. Yeah. These crayfish aren't that great. Yeah. The southern ones are good, but... What's well, so the crayfish around the... The Abrolhos crayfish aren't that good, are you oh, saying, or the ones? Uh, they, I'd say they're good, but I think the market wants the cold water red ones. Yeah, right. When I was in Tassie. So th these aren't painted, though, or tropical? No, nah, these are Western, Western rock lobsters. Western rock lobsters, but they're just a bit not as, um, not as big, not as... Well, I think the warmer the water, the quality isn't as good. It yeah, seems right. everything in cold water, like your abalone, your Patagonian toothfish, southern rock lobsters... They fetch a higher market for the tuna yeah. to the Chinese market. Where seafood buyers from family have told me they just say it's... They call the other ones Gucci and ours is not. Yeah, right. That's what they, that's what they call it. <laughs> Uncle's at Sydney Fish Market and he goes, they go, yeah, this cray, the southern cray, that's Gucci. Like, yeah. Your cray, yeah. It's not, it's not that great. Yeah, right. There's a lot of crayfish around the world similar can come in whether they can replace it with yeah like the Florida one but it has the effect I thought had a bigger effect on the industry was the quota system which came in 2011 I'm pretty sure I think because we used to have a lot more boats yeah man um, a lot more boats so you had a lot more people employed a bigger community at the Abrolhos. We had three schools, three pubs, a church, and you know, one one island. Was there more people at the pub than the church? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, the church is on a little places, Italian but... island. So. Italian island. Yeah. So the southern. So there's like a there's there's even like cultural divisions. Well, a lot of the original fishermen were Italians from the war. Yeah. Right. So the first group, which is close to the southern group, 
obviously it was easier to get to. Yeah. So most of them are Italians. So that's you, they're like the OG fishermen from there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go up to say Easter Group. That's where my brother-in-law is now. Yeah. You have more Finns. 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 Really. Finns and Aussies. And then you go up towards Wallabies. Crazy scandos. They just they love extreme jobs. Don't yeah. They? So they'd have saunas. They made sa- um, really? saunas out there. Wow. Back in the day, like out of basic material. And that's how they kept their wounds clean because you get sea boils, sea ulcers from fishing because yeah. you're always in salt water. That's how they clean their bodies with limited fresh water. There's wow. no water out there. That's getting them by barrels. But then you go up to say Wallabies and North Arm and it's predominantly Australians or European background. Whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. European background, I mean, like, Australians. Yeah, Um, skips. So, yeah. The pubs were further up, Mm. and the southern group never had a pub. And their islands are a lot smaller. So So you got the the southern... So the southern southern island, the originally populated southern group, which was populated by Italians, and they've got a church... And then you've got the Finns. So the most northern you're saying is the, is the sort of Australian, European background, Australian. More background. Well, yeah. Italians pretty much are everywhere. Mm. I'm not sure about North Island. That's, it seems to get, to me, it seems to get rougher the further up you go. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, Italians are the Wallabies, but more the European, like English, Scottish, Irish sort of backgrounds more. Yeah. The guy me and my dad fish for the most seasonal family were Norwegians. So, real clash, different cultures. You know. Have you ever seen one of the saunas? Are they still around? No. Um, I'd say they would be. Yeah. I've never been to Little Rat, but that's where they are. Uh, Little Rat was where the fins went, most of the fins. And they used to sleep apparently before camp, so they slept on their boat, which was like a yacht. Or yeah. Like, an old sailboat or the ones a little rat um, used to sleep on a wall made a concrete wall or maybe a wall out of guano rocks yeah because the guano miners were really there before the fishermen yeah and they slept on either side depending on the wind so just in a swag or something tents just to have some solid ground to sleep on but not as like yeah a, yeah. yeah and then do, do you know when, when did they start building and that, because I've seen the pictures of those um, really colourful shacks, like the pink shacks and green and yellow and stuff. Well, w- which island is that mainly on? Um, they're all the way through. Yeah, Everyone's right. got them now. The original camps, I believe, depending where they were, would have been maybe made out of guano rocks. Yeah. Some of them still have that set up. So guano rocks are like solidified guano? Yeah, like bird shit. Bird shit, yeah, yeah. So they took, pretty sure they took the rocks there or they were already there, I don't know, but they just they used to lay them out, I think, would all collect. Yeah. But yeah. What, a, but why would they use guano rocks and not, um, like, the limestone or...? Because a lot of the, I believe, guys, it was a job that no one really had money. It wasn't money in it then. Mm. A lot of people from the war or to do something different we didn't have didn't have money I yeah think. it was the main thing for materials yeah they had a boat and but the limestone that was isn't that limestone there or is there not enough there's more guano rocks than there would be like loose limestone 
Yeah, I'd say it was more there. Just yeah. the rocks up okay. left there. Yeah. I'm not too sure about the whole history of the Kalano, but yeah. some of the camps still, I still have it around there. Yeah. So they'd be pretty old camps. Yeah. But, and that was the fertiliser industry, right? Yeah. yeah. So our, one of our ancestors used to cart that from Port Gregory to Fremantle. Yeah, right. In an open boat. Yeah. That's what he did. Yeah. He'd pick it up. And he got shipwrecked at Southern Group for like a while and had to get back. And somehow repaired his boat and got back. Back to Freo. Wow. And then he, he ran aground at Rockingham, tried to walk back to Freo and he died of exposure. Before he got to Freo? Yeah. Shit. That's a, tre- that's a treacherous journey. <laughs> and then his son, who was an orphan, became the first European farmer in Mullawar. So wow. that's north of Geraldton, or east of Geraldton. So yeah, another story, but uh, no, all I know, I know of the first camp on Pigeon Island was from my bosses, one of my old skippers, dad's skipper. Um, yeah, his dad, Norwegian, he built the first proper shack which is still there yeah and that was was that asbestos uh, no. it was all tin tin is there asbestos there at the moment I'd say it would be still a bit of this. I don't know if they've got it all off they've really tried to clean the place up but there was like they did use a lot of asbestos back in the uh, day yeah or? there was yeah yeah yeah. I didn't know <laughs> someone who would dump it yeah but I wasn't involved in that I was at no fucking way but. yeah there's plenty of asbestos dumping that goes goes on. But yeah, no. How how what's the longest you've spent like out there? Like, did you stay out there? Or did you mainly just come like boats come go from Geraldton, um, fish out there, and then come no, back to the mainland? We used to or? do before the quota. Our season was seven months, so you do what's about to start now: the rights migration, which is the juvenile crayfish. I don't even know where these crayfish go. Yeah. But theories from some of my old skippers would say they're moving out to the shelf and they're filling the empty spaces up. Yeah. So filling up ledges, rock crevices, um, yeah, to live there. And the others go out to the edge, which is all mud. And from there, they don't know what happens to them. Really? Yeah. Within the edge of the known crayfish yeah. world. You know, it's a hundred fathoms to have in many metres, that is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what was the original question? <laughs> oh, I, I can't even remember. So that the I remember when you first mentioned the, what the whites migration. I thought yeah. you were I thought you were talking about the white boats from here, and you were saying that's when all the tourists start to come up. Um, These crayfish are cream uh, juveniles. Yeah. So they haven't molted into a red shell, so yeah. they get called the whites. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's like a there's a mysterious point in their life cycle of the, of any crayfish where they kind of head out to deeper water and they reach a point and then no one knows what happens. Apparently wow. not. Um, but yeah, I was a month. It used to be a seven months. So you do. When I started, we do November to like end of February on the coast. That could be from Kelbarry to Lehman, everywhere in between. And then you go to the Abrolhos, which would open on the 15th of March. And boats I was on, we'd go there at the start of March and live there without power for about two weeks. Yeah. But you start getting ready. So you bring over a fucking shitload of bait. 
all your pots, all your supplies. But we had a, a boat called a carrier boat, which would service each group. They had their own carrier boats. Yeah. So one for Southern Group, two for Rat, um, one for the Wallabies, and then one for North Island. Yeah. And this was your supplies. And then that's the, that's the four, right? Yeah. Yeah. So North Island's kind of on its own, but I think they say it's part of Wallabies. But they're up on their own kind of thing. So yeah, we, it's 15th of March, you put your pots in on called Bait Up Day, which is when you'd set them, which is the 14th of March. Yeah. And the 15th you do your first pull. So these crayfish hadn't been touched since June 30th the previous year. Yeah. So that was when you made your money, you caught your biggest catches for the first month and a half. Yeah. And the number of the craze would slow down. Yeah. You wouldn't catch as many. So that's how the season used to work. So you'd be there, be a for four months straight. It'd work every day. Towards the end, May, June, you'd start to do it two days, every two days. Yeah. The weather was really fucked, you might do three days. But we generally would go, one boat I worked on, we went every day, no matter what the weather was. So 40 knot rain squalls, a big swell, you have to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to move your boats off the jetty onto moorings and go out there in the dark and try and get on it. Yeah, right. You go out anything because a lot of the, every fisherman had their own style. They fish different depths, different reef types of reef. So yeah, you had to be there every day because June 30th the season would close for till November 15th. So that's when they made their money for yeah. the year. So yeah, you never had days off. Your body would get be covered in boils and sores. And, yeah, you'd be pretty fucked by the end of that. that. Sounds fucking rough. So then, when you come in June thirtieth, you have to do you have to do a lot of free work, like shed work, you'd call it, like before the season and after season, to get everything ready. But once you come to town, yeah, it was you're pretty keen to go out and see women and get pissed and yeah, yeah. go on a bender or something. Yeah. Yeah. Blow, blow off a bit of steam. <laughs> oh fuck yeah, because. You have women on the island, but most of them were either married. They're all married. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, yeah, a lot of single, a lot of men, single men on the island. Yeah, yeah. The natural sort of. And whoever could handle the work was who they got. Mm. So you'd have people from all sorts of backgrounds, different personality types. Generally, a rougher sort of crowd. Yeah. No one from private school. <laughs> <laughs> or you know something like that. Yeah, yeah, Generally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, people who can handle it aren't used to, to getting pretty, things handed to them. Nah, you had yeah, you to be pretty, pretty mentally tough to put up with it because you're exposed, you know. The boats are open, so you're out in all the wind. Yeah. So you got to be able to ha- handle yourself in the elements and with that, all that kind of those changing circumstances, yeah. but then also with all the other, I mean, the social environment, I imagine, as well, would be pretty, like, yeah. by, confrontational. By the um, start of May, it was, people were pretty sick of each other. Yeah. Generally, when the fighting would start. <laughs> and yeah, like, it used to be a lot worse in the, from told, 70s, 80s, 90s, was a lot more fighting, things like that. Different groups had different things, like North Island was probably the most notorious for fighting. Yeah. Um, all in pub roles. Yeah. Like, using stools, women, everyone would get into it. Really? Until recently, I heard of a good one. <laughs> Some mates of mine fought another guy who punched his yeah, like 80 year old pop. <laughs> this guy was young and he just punched him in the head. So it was like a punched his own pop. 
Nah, I punched someone else's pot. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then pushed a woman over, so then it started a big, big brawl. And everyone, I think, just jumped into it. Yeah. But as I say, there's a lot of multi-generational feuds there that just re-spark up over. Just carried on from... They're just coming from fucking nothing. Yeah. But where I was on, I grew up on most and worked the most. That had a lot of more... It's probably more caddy, like... More bitchy sort of thing. As opposed... As a, only certain families were generally the fighters. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I won't ask their names. <laughs> no, I won't give up names. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's a very, very primitive sort of thing to me. Yeah. It's like we're just hun- we're hunters, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that there's a kind of, um, you know, you're activating a part of your kind of psyche, which is pretty... Yeah, um, exactly. ...primitive in that kind of, you know, like whenever you're hunting, you're sort of like... And you have to, you have to have a bit of an animal in you to do the work. Like, yeah. depending on the boat to, you're To on. remain focused and motivated and stuff, you're sort of tapping into that kind of, you know, because yeah. shit's on the line, you know. Yeah, the fishermen are under a lot of pressure. That's how they make their money. They've got to maintain their costs, maintain everything. Yeah. And the season was open. And then when it closed, it was closed. So something went wrong. Like, guys, boat would break down. They couldn't afford to have breakdowns roll their boat in the breakers and yeah. someone would die or you know there was just so much going on yeah they had to had a lot of pressure to catch and maintain their catches yeah, so, yeah. was um, what was the deal with drinking when you were like when you're working is it kind of like I mean obviously not like depends you know, who you work for yeah, yeah right <laughs> the old school I call them the old school from say the 60s onwards they was a Big, big drinking. Yeah. Drink at work. Take King Browns to work. Yeah. And drink at work. Like while you're like during yeah, the shift. Yeah, 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 work, yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah. That was a big culture. Was drinking. Seventies become the younger generation were hippies. So then there was a drinking. They worked for the guys that were the pissheads. And guys like my uncle, my dad were the hippies, bong smokers. Yeah. So then that was a big thing. Um, like then. So cocaine, then you had the 90s, which became the heaviest stuff, like more heroin. True. Um, methamphetamines, which is carried up. Methamphetamines are probably a drug by choice, not very, not generally, but more those party pills, party drugs come into the 2000s. Yeah. It went through the generations. Um, really, depending on who you work for, is you could be tolerant. A lot of guys would smoke cones before work. Yeah. Um, I'd go to work hungover as fuck, drunk, still from the night before a lot. Yeah. It was just a big part of the culture was to drink. Yeah. Like, drink a lot. And we had a pub, so it was dangerous. Yeah. Certain certain crowds would want to party, and you just mingle, fit in with them. Yeah. Then you get people that were straight as a die and wouldn't, wouldn't do any of that. Yeah. But just from where I was, we drank a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to think, how are these guys still awake, you know? Yeah. You know, ecstasy on a Tuesday, like, because every day was the same. You know, yeah, the yeah. weekend was. Yeah. And then so you're literally working every day and then just, day. like, either drinking or, or, you know, bongs in the morning, beers after work or during work, um, smoking bulbs. By then, by then, no one really drank at work when I was started working. Yeah. 
But as soon as they got in, some guys would have a beer before they did anything. Yeah. And they'd start drinking. Yeah. Some guys would drink, take pallets of alcohol. And, yeah. And drink that in two months. Yeah, whatever. Everyone was different. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. depending on the boats, you know, the guys on the, the bigger boats, they'd be fishing double gear, which is two pots at a time attached to a 100 fathom rope, 12 boats. They'd fish a different style. They're out there constantly, yeah. kind of thing. So they only come in when they're full. So they generally have a crowd that needed to be used to fatigue. Yeah. Where a lot of the boats of the islands are more day boats, you go out. Some some boats I worked on, you know, I worked for four hours. Yeah. And you're done. So everybody had a different amount of pots to their license. Yeah. Different styles of fishing. Deep water, you're going to be out there longer. Yeah. Shallow water, you could be in earlier. But if you're in the breakers on a shallow water boat, that's where it was really, really gnarly. You know, they're yeah. inside the reef with 20, 30 foot breakers around them. Yeah. Fishing in knee deep water. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. A lot of those boats would roll. Yeah. A lot more risk, more guys would go over the side, tangled, because you had to be quick. Yeah. Because they're, they're going in between sets. So what, the, the boats would come in and then... They'd wait for a lull, race in, get in the pot, snagged, you got to get the fuck out of there. And they have to, if they got stuck, you have to front up to, say, a 20, 10, 20-foot breaker. Yeah. And it's all white water. So you, got, you might have, like, what it is, like, might be a few minutes between yeah. between sets, and you got to just, like, duck in. Get pull, it. Well, I like, pull one pot or a couple or whatever you can get. Oh, whatever just, you could get. Yeah, right. One of my mates a couple of years ago, they got hit by one that didn't even look big because it's really unpredictable. His boss was up driving from upstairs instead of down below just to yeah. keep an eye out so my mate was on the deck on his own and he reckons it just lumped up and broke out of nowhere and it drilled him like over the top of the boat the breaker and my mate got washed to the other side and the rope came out of the winch which pulls the pot up and as it's pot's going back down so his leg was caught and he got pulled Fuck. from his back through the which you call a kakabot which the craze fall into yeah between that was going out the tipper so he's stuck in between two two open forks like that and he's lucky he went over the bait thing and he grabbed a knife and cut it yeah a big completely his ankle was going like completely raw to the bone the rope was ripping his leg like that bad. Fuck. but it would have pulled his leg up yeah like or he would have just would have killed him yeah but yeah that sort of shit would happen guys would get a, around the hand they'd have to jump in because you can't go between the tipper and pull your arm. Yeah, right. There's fucking sharks swimming around, wanting the bait. You could have 20 or 30 sharks falling. Yeah. And yeah, I know a guy who went through. He was on a, at the Wallabies, the most dangerous place, Evening Reef. This breaks on four angles with a 30-foot set at the back, and then it breaks into angles like that, and this dry reef, and it explodes to a 20-foot whitewash. Wow. And he got pulled into that. And, um, yeah, into that reef. So if you manage to escape with keeping all your limbs getting dragged off the boat, then you just end up on a shallow reef surrounded by getting... By, by sharks. <laughs> <laughs> or the boat will drag you down and you'll drown. Yeah. Because the tension... They tell you to jump over Yeah. when it's slack, so you've got a chance to get it off. If that rope goes tight, 
you're going to become a statistic. Yeah. You drown, that pods. Is there, is there many many deaths? In the, not recently. No. But I think in the old days there was, there was like quite a few casualties. A yeah. lot of boats used to sink because they used to have a regulator what boat you could use. Yeah. So there's an incredible risk involved in the, the oh, whole process dangerous. of extracting crayfish to... Yeah, there's other things that could... Like other animals come up that can sting you. Yeah. If a, if a winch breaks, which rips the pot up, or um, breaks, or you don't winch it properly, you have a cray pot that's between 50 and 90 kilos hits you, it'll kill you. Yeah. And I got, got hit by an octopus pot, which is came over the winch by accident. The skipper he pressed down instead, of, didn't lock it off properly, and he pressed down, and it hit him, snapped both his arms, completely snapped the arms. Like, lucky it didn't kill him. But yeah, that that can happen. I've put one over. We were at Evening Reef, and I had to. We had to run, and I hit the trip and pulled the winch down too quick, and it came past my head. Yeah. And just completely smashed this pot into pieces. Yeah. Like these things are solid. But it hit the tipper, I mean the winch, and just exploded. Yeah, right. If that hit me, it would kill me. Fucking hell. But that's the pressure of being in there. And this particular reef, there was only one fisherman who used to fish it. Yeah. And his pods were like 140 kilos, so he put extra ballast in them. Because this reef comes out of deep water to a shallow reef on its own. And it's nothing else is near it. So all that water movement hits that. So these pots have to be able to sit there without moving, because if they move, the crayfish won't go anywhere near it. Yeah, right. So it had to be totally stable. Stable as, as you could get it. Yeah. And he put a float above the chafer, which is a thicker rope towards the pot. So if it rubs on the reef, it won't cut your line. Yeah, the but then you don't have that thick, the, not the whole way, because it's not as heavy and doesn't take as much room. Yeah. yeah. So you have your float that will stick up and um, it'll stick the chafer up so it doesn't move across the pot. If it moves across the pot, it'll scare the crayfish away. Yeah. So different setups, but you could, none of his deckhands could lift these pots. Yeah. You used to have to put it to the side and push it, push it over. Yeah. 140 kilos dead weight. Fuck then they come hell. up wet, so that's more. And with crayfish in them, yeah. potentially. Yeah. yeah. So the breaker fishermen were the craziest. Yeah. I believe, like, the risk is insane. Like, yeah. A guy at North Island, He'd be in there, like, I used to fish for a guy who he was his decky, and he goes, you could see the pot come through the breaker. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, fucking crazy. What, but, do, what is it, what is a crayfish, could you, it, you, might, I mean, you might not know this, but what is a, do you have any idea what a crayfish costs in somewhere like China, like where they export the majority uh, of these crayfish to? I'm not sure what they pay, but they were getting at one point $100, the fishermen were getting $100 a kilo for them. 100 bucks a kilo. So whatever so that that's is. that's like wholesale from the fishermen to whoever's importing them. The, the factory, the factories would buy it for that price off the fishermen. Yeah. And I was in there recently working and that's where they generally would process, grade, pro, not process, grade them into live tanks to yeah. keep them alive for that market. And they just built a one near the airport at Welshpool to hold them. Yeah. So they're, they're yeah, worth a lot of money. Yeah. But once that crashed, yeah, it's costly, costs a lot of money. Yeah. It used to be processing lives, everything. The factory is its own 
crazy history of that place. The yeah. place is fucking nuts. Another another whole subject, but fucking nuts. They used to process everything, so they'd work the whole season as well without a day off. Yeah, and they'd be in town, but they'd work crazy hours. Yeah, like, we might only work five five six hours a day. They generally work eight. They could work up to 18, 24 hours a day. Jesus. Processing some craze would couldn't be exported, but all be cooked. Different types, tails. So they they'd cook them on at the on factory land. as well. Yeah. Yeah, right. But then I went to the live market where the money went up. And with the quota, less boats, more demand, I suppose. Yeah. But still. So the, when did the quota come in and what did it change to? About 2011. It, it killed a lot of the fleet. So less boats. It killed the island's community, really. Yeah. There's no more schools. Pubs are only open for certain times of the year. Yeah. Less camps, so they're all falling down because you got to maintain it every year. It's a salt air, wrecks everything. Yeah. So yeah, the community vibe definitely died. And the, the quota was like a limit on the amount that you oh, could catch. You could catch kilo-wise. Yeah. So it created a. Apparently, this happened in the 80s or the 90s as well, but it created a, a mentality of like farming. Smaller farms were pushed out. Yeah. Smaller boats were pushed out. Bigger fishermen with more money bought more pots, would lease more pots of smaller fishermen. Yeah. So they could pay, say, $70, $700 to lease one pot. Yeah. What for the year or for... For that 12... The quota become a 12-month season. Yeah. So you had 12 months to catch your quota. Yeah. They bought grades in, so different sizes, different sizes get different prices. Yeah. So the price might be... A smaller crayfish is a double A all the way down to a to a H, which is the biggest, so probably three, four kilo crayfish, up to a one that's just legally sized, double A. Depending on what the market wants for the Chinese holidays, New Year's, uh, they have a ghost month, it would change what the prices were. Yeah. So generally the Chinese New Year, the small red ones would all be high price, so it would affect what the craze want. Um, what China wanted. So is there, are the small ones considered like better quality? Um, depends, I think they want, the bigger ones more for a status thing. So you have a yeah, wedding, okay. you put a big, big one in the middle of the table and it shows we've got lots of wealth yeah, yeah, for right. our family or whoever's getting So it's back. not even necessarily about like that, you know, the big or small have better tasting meat. It's just, it's just sort of more to do with the sort of the status and the symbolism yeah, of it or the practicalities it, yeah, of it all. It doesn't. I think red means lucky. Okay. Something like that. So yeah. there's like this sort of cultural superstition and stuff involved in it as well, which actually affects the price of the crayfish. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. And then, um, but a lot of the crayfish that are caught, as I say, the whites, they're a cream-coloured crayfish. Oh, so you do actually want to catch the whites? Well, that's when the volume comes in. Yeah, right. These bigger boats that wanted to buy out smaller boats became what they called bigger boats, so they become bigger, bigger vessels. Yeah. People started building ridiculously sized boats and trying to build, build the next guy wanted to build a bigger one, so he had the biggest. Yeah. This is just my opinion, but yeah. it's just so what a I bit believe. of dick swinging going on. Oh, massive dick swinging. Yeah. The li- to me, the lifestyle characters disappeared and become more about people in collared shirts, business types, become yeah, more yeah. like a business. And, um, yeah, so they generally fish the edge, which you'll catch a volume of crayfish. Yeah. So you could bring in 10 tonne or 
five ton a day or something while it's thick. Yeah. But these crayfish are cream coloured, they're not red, so I've never been able to understand why they're worth the same as a red one. Yeah. Which is what they used to want in the old season, you get more money for red ones. Yeah. But, hey, I don't know. And then that was, you're saying that, and the, the reason why you get more money for the red ones is because it, it, red was lucky for the Chinese. That's just what I've been told. Yeah, right. Red means lucky. So, in your opinion, the introduction of the quota is has has that been like a positive sustainability move in terms of the crayfish um, population or is it m- meant it, that it's it more just exploited the um, smaller fishermen maybe a bit of both like you never it's definitely made it healthier yeah probably okay. a bit it's probably the same amount of pots in the water but they're not in there for so long yeah so the crayfish say on the coast were a lot smaller yeah they generally had them farmed down to a adjust size in places depending where you went you go down the coral they get bigger the abrolis always had really big ones because apparently it's a breeding big breeding ground yeah but since the quota come in i worked on a jet boat off the coast and we're catching double what we call a double gauges so you can put two gauges on yeah instead of one that's how big its carapace is. Yeah, right. So, like, like the gauge to measure the size wasn't big enough to measure it. You'd have to put. You have to. Well, you put two. That's yeah, how yeah, big yeah. They were. Well, so these, it's made it healthier. So that, sure. that, that's where t- that's like this. Uh, yeah, right. That's just its carapace. The carapace and then the tail, sort of similar length. Yeah. So it definitely made it healthier. Yeah. They don't have to go as much effort to catch these crayfish anymore. Yeah. Before it was very gun like territorial don't come into my area because that's where my crows are yeah now everyone sort of goes wherever they want yeah um, it's not not as competitive it's not as hard they reckon a lot of friends say it's not as hard to catch a quota yeah because if you get a good whites run you could you could finish your quota in two months yeah right the guys have different styles they want to chase different prices yeah guys to fish for only fish september and october which are quieter months for crayfish this is more a spawning thing. You get a good good pot, but most of the crazy are spawners. Yeah. So they've got eggs. You can't keep them. Yeah. But he had it figured out. That's when the price gets highest. And he had his spots where he knew they'd be. So he was fishing exactly what the market wanted. Yeah. When the market wanted big craze G's to H, or E's to H's, He'd only go and get G's to H's, where yeah, other right. guys are bringing in A's to C's, which makes the price go down. Yeah, because right. the, the factory's getting crayfish they can't really sell. Yeah. Well, they can sell it, but they don't really. China want that size. Yeah. That's why the price has gone up. Yeah. So guys, so he's have playing the supply and demand game. Yeah. Like quite smartly. Where a lot of the fishermen go, oh, come the price drops, and the factory don't want it. Yeah. They want those. Because ones. you're overloading your supply with all the. Yeah, yeah. Right. But they go, well, I'll get X amount. It depends on their running costs, depends on what they need, how yeah. much they lease. They've got to pay a lease price that makes it harder. Yeah. Because they got to pay. What, like for their pots and stuff? They've yeah. got to pay uh, owner of those pots a percentage and then whoever they lease them off, so the factory even, before they even make a dollar. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all real. Depending on the fishermen, it all changes. Yeah. Yeah, right. But in changes, the islands community, in my opinion, died. Yeah. We used to have sports days, um, a thing called a deckies do, which started from 
they used to have to work every day, so the deckhands on some of the islands come up with an idea to get their skippers pissed. Yeah. So they went and bought heaps of kegs and got them sent over and had a party. So the skippers got so drunk that they didn't go to work the next day. <laughs> That's how this started. And this continued up until my first season, which was... This is in order to try and get a day off. To, to get a day off. <laughs> so this was my first season I worked, was 2007. At the Wallaby Group, that was the last ever deckies do because another fisherman come in and reckons everyone was too out of control. So he stopped the deckies do because yeah, right. he managed the pub. Yeah. It was just some guy who wasn't from there. But that that's when things got really fucking crazy because everyone would have their first day off. Yeah. So as you can imagine, no one went to sleep. <laughs> everyone just got really fucking loose and everyone's girlfriend or wife would come over. Yeah. And they'd have a big party, they'd get bands to come over. Yeah, right. Everyone would chip in and get free piss, drugs, whatever the fuck they wanted, and just tear it up. So and from yeah. like a kind of, uh, from a commercial perspective, um, or like a protect the fisher, even like a sustainability perspective, the quota has sort of been a good thing. Definitely. But it's just destroyed the culture that sort of was built up there over the, because over the years. Because everyone was stuck there together for four months, so you yeah, had yeah. to put up with each other. You had to... Work out how to, how to live with each other. Yeah, yeah. you'd have... Create community. Certain older fishermen or respected fishermen would sort of control things. Yeah. A certain personality didn't fit in or cause too much trouble, they'd be asked couple of times to settle down yeah if they didn't they got asked to leave yeah but take it out to the back room and yeah <laughs> yeah type of thing yeah uh, a lot of guys would get banned from the pub you yeah. get a couple of warnings you know, play it up started a fight or you got out of control yeah you get a ban so they had older guys to control things yeah so there's this kind of natural community order that would sort of spring up in yeah. the kind of in the absence of any sort of author- like any sort of order. Yeah, um, no cops or nothing. external authoritarian sort the of. The cops figure. occasionally had had been called out there of a certain incident. Yeah, I know my dad's old decky. He wasn't working for my dad at the time, but he was working on another boat. A SWAT team flew out there to raid him. True. With dogs and everything. Yeah. For what was the what was uh, the? I think he had like, a lot of certain chemical drugs. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, dogs. So this <laughs> islands community had. Well, like, just, they flew out or? Yeah, chop it out. Like, True. Land on the island. <laughs> <laughs> SWAT raid. SWAT. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Like this was only in the two thousands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did he get done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of Dad's old deckies. Again, wasn't working for him at the time, but. He was he got all his supplies together for four months and got stopped on the way to the boat. Yeah. So he went to jail for like four years because he had that much shit on him to take. Like, oh, <laughs> for his supply. <laughs> I swear it's personal use. <laughs> but yeah, it couldn't back that up in court. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened here. Wild. But yeah, other events we had, we had uh, Mother's Day, so all the women had their day. Like, no men went to the pub on Mother's Day because all the women just got fucked up. Yeah. Like, they had a day away from the kids. Uh, we had two up, which is still going, and since uh, the white boats have come over, that's crazy busy. Yeah, yeah. I've, crazy, I've, I've, crazy I've heard busy. that the, yeah, the two up's like one of the events that everyone goes to. Yeah. I haven't been for a long time. It used to literally be just the fishermen in one group would go the afternoon and that was crazy enough but now it's a humongous event yeah really big we have golf day 
So you hit golf balls into a barrel that was attached to a dinghy and you win a prize. <laughs> uh, sports days, whatever. Dad made a kayak race. Yeah. Just, it just shit to spice things up from the monotony of living on the island. Yeah. Bring community vibe. Yeah. They have dinner nights so the women would organise, uh, raise money for the kids at the school. Burger nights, theme night for food, so yeah. excuse for deckies to go up and buy something to eat. And would this be just within each sort of individual island would have yeah. their own kind of community things or would yeah. there be kind of, you know, yeah. was there like inter-island communities? We had intra-island games nights. Yeah, yeah. So you have, say, Wallabies versus, generally it was only Wallabies, Easter group and North Island because it was easier to get to, Southern yeah. group. No, they never participated. But this was, yeah, we played darts, pool, and table tennis. And, yeah, again, this is when shit would usually go down. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I remember one, yeah. Oh. It doesn't take much for people to get territorial about, you know, like, as soon as there's a competitive excuse. Way we were brought up, we just got along with everyone. But a lot of these crew, they had... We gen- our family generally just worked there. We weren't born there. They had these territorial feuds. Yeah. But yeah, I remember one year it was like a fight over two two particular brothers who tried to take over the industry recently and failed miserably with the financial downturn. True, true. It's come back to bite them severely, and they yeah. burnt a lot of people and a lot of bridges in this time. This particular. So th- this was like they tried to take over just before like COVID and the recent China thing and stuff, and then the exports all went down. So and, their gigantic uh, boat has recently been sold. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, maybe a power trip thing. They treated their workers extremely badly. They yeah. worked them to the point of some have told me mental insanity. True. Um, but anyway, one of the, one of these particular nights, these two came up and tried to tell another fisherman that he they he lied about his previous year's catch rate who gives a fuck you know but this was what they were on about so it, it turned out to be a fight between four onto one and the guy who was by himself won true yeah but he was was he the guy accusing them about the catch rate no, or he was, he was being, being accused, accused. <laughs> he took them all and on. this guy's pretty pretty tough and um, yeah the guys yeah so the guys, two deckies got involved and they still didn't. Like, yeah. But this was all over a catch rate. Wow. And once they all met in the middle Clearly of the it's game, not just like, about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot, lot of, of ego. bubbling under the surface. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of ego. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a spiny animal, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. There's so much pride and obsession over it. Yeah. And who's the best? Over the crayfish itself. Yeah, it yeah. Become, it's become a symbol for yeah, yeah. ego, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, depending on the people, take it differently. What, what, what is the, like, is that sort of the, the general attitude for a lot of people in terms of, is there like, you know, their relationship with the crayfish as like, as a symbol, well, is it sort of? I've seen more the kid, the people who've grown up that were literally from babies out there have a probably higher respect for the crayfish itself. Yeah. I can't speak for everyone, but... That's the animal that makes you your money and made you everything you have. Yeah, so you have should to be grateful to, to its existence and yeah. treat it with... so I'd say generally everyone wants it to be sustainable. Yeah. If without it, they can't be who they are, they can't have their lifestyle. Yeah. A lot of these people can't do anything else. Yeah. 
And is, is there is there like is there a lot of love that grows for the islands themselves from the people who've been out there for a long time, or do the people sort of you know they do they hate it and just can't wait to sort of like get their catch and um, I'd get say their money and get paid and leave, or is it kind of? I'd say know? you might have a tiny percentage that would dis possibly dislike it, but I don't think so. I think that place is really. Yeah, these people love this place. Yeah. That's why I think a lot of people are affected by new things going on if they get regulated too much. Whenever yeah. a new fisheries rule would come in, it would make people quite distressed. Yeah. The quota made people distressed at first. Yeah. Because it was this huge change. But that's when a lot of them made a lot of money. Yeah. So the quota's been great financially and sustainably. But, yeah, without it, this place, this is people. These people belong to this place. That's who shaped who they are. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say everyone probably don't even consciously know how much it means to. Yeah, they're a part of that. Part of those islands. Are. Yeah, they like, are. Some of these guys are just coral dwelling people. Like they, that's what they are. They, yeah. That's the, they call it home. Yeah. They don't call it the islands. Like that's their home. Yeah. To they are. Even the people like myself who've just worked there or was there as a kid, my dad especially, it becomes a party. Like a huge amount of our family have worked there at some point. Even my auntie, she used to be a cook. Like they used to hire women, young women to come out and cook for fishermen yeah. for decades in the 70s and the 80s. Once you're there, I think just that nature, either, either you like it or you won't. And a lot of people go out there and think, they're, oh, I can't be out here for four months. Yeah. Like this is way too isolating, but the people that love it, yeah, you're stuck on it. it becomes yeah. stuck in your head forever, I think. Yeah, it's, I imagine it's almost like being on an island almost ex- accelerates your kind of relationship with the place. It's just with so place because there's nowhere to go, so you yeah. kind of like you are habitually and ritualistically just kind of like your life is, you know, 100%. Like I see it in my, my nieces now, they. They've gone out there from babies, and they're just nature-loving kids. Yeah, there's just so much environment there, you know. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of there's a like people want to also not just in terms of sustainability of the crayfish because that's about um, you know protecting the sort of the industry as well and making sure that it lasts for a long time. Is there sort of a lot of environmental sort of um, concern around you know? Decided to sort of to protect uh, other species. Like yeah. I know you, you're, you do wildlife photography as well. Yeah, for um, sure. Like the global, the warming of the climate's another thing. Yeah. So this could possibly it had a one year, 2013 or 12. There was a big um, hot water event which killed a lot of sea life out there. Yeah, right. So this stressed people going. Now we got different fish coming down from the tropics. The water's warming. There's different species, so these crayfish don't generally live further north in the warmer water. Yeah. They seem to be moving south. Yeah. Down at uh, the Windy Harbour, they're getting ridiculous whites runs. So the, the settling of the purulent small crayfish must be, just in my opinion, must be going down with the current. Yeah, right. As the water's warming. Yeah. So that'll with the colder current. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, definitely the environment. Like, I think more, maybe more recently, it's been talked about. Yeah. Um, there's a guy out there who's done the seabirds for 10, 20 years off his own back. He's a self-taught um, seabird scientist. Yeah. Right. 
he was on like the ABC. Like a conservationist kind of yeah, you know, so monitoring them and stuff. He just put a book out that's done a whole ecology, ecology of your rollers, which has never been done. Yeah. And he was on the ABC talking about the birds because they're a barometer. Seabirds are a barometer for a healthy ocean. Yeah. And it, to, to me, the birds are only affected if people walk on certain islands where they are. The fishing doesn't really have an effect on them because they can't get hooked on something or mm. they generally die from fishing hooks. Um, but, yeah, the tourism's the one that... <laughs> ecotourism is what they want to do so they get to see the birds, the animals. But at the same time, if that's not regulated, you've got people walking all over very sensitive landscapes. Yeah. But they just put rangers in last year. One of my mates a ranger, and that's their job is to make sure people don't. Yeah, don't yeah. come on them. So this guy um, got on the ABC and he got sent out to all of Australia a video segment saying this area is such a precious seabird habitat. Yeah. And these islands aren't very big, so they're quite sensitive. Yeah. And yeah, they could be yeah, delicate little kind of like they're almost like little. It almost feels like it's just coral still, just it just sits yeah, above the water a bit. Water. Yeah, it's a little bit of sand on some of them, but yeah, a lot of the islands are moving. The sandy islands are, are getting bigger or smaller in places. Uh, friends of mine just built a jetty, and the jetty filled up with sand within a few months. True, the camps have been washed away. So yeah. the island's shape is changing. Yeah, so whatever that means environmentally, they've had to rebuild camps, move from back. So, I mean, habitation, I imagine, like permanent habitation there, it's just going to become harder and harder. Yeah, well, as the water rises, these islands will disappear in time, I yeah. think. Some yeah. of the islands have. Ones that were made out of shale coral have shifted and disappeared. So, have you noticed, um, well, maybe not you personally, or just like, a, you know, within the sort of general population, has there been, have, you know, has the, have you noticed the sea levels uh, being within, higher? Yeah, there's photos of fishermen talking in one of the books and talk about it now. That even my friends on one island, yeah, it has within the last 15 years, 10 yeah, years. Right. If the island, the sandy islands have got moved further out or they've come in. Yeah. So the jetties are half full of sand. Instead yeah. of the jetty used to be, say, this deep to really deep, it's now they can't get their boat in there anymore. Yeah, right. So it's, it's changing. Yeah. I'll just grab another beer. Man. Yeah, no worries. I'll get, I'll get it. Cheers. What are you having? Just a great Melbourne place. Sure. Melbourne Ah, uh, yes, please.
About pig pig mustaka. What's your what's the what's the relationship there again? Uh, my uncle worked for him in '98, '99. Okay. Does um was that was that North Island or? Yeah, North yeah. Island. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what about like what are you doing? What are you doing now with the? Um, you know, working at Wajamap and the wildlife photography and like what's because the season's finished, right? Is that sort of fishing? Yeah. Yeah, I was on the bottom fishing this year. Yeah. So I just did a few trips. I was at the Cray Factory. Yeah. So I'm just really here to photograph the mutton birds, shearwaters. Yeah. Because they're the Abrolis as well. We've been to Tasmania to photograph them. Yeah. I'm going to go to New Zealand to photograph them. So I'm just going to do different places they are. They're a seabird that's affected by plastic yeah. really badly. From, like, eating it? Yeah. So the chicks get full of plastic and die. Mm. Um, are those photos that you see them? They put salt in them and they spew up pure yeah. plastic. Yeah. But, yeah, it's an interesting bird. They, they follow the boats a lot, and these birds die off 30 metres. Underwater. Underwater. Whoa, 30 meters. And they cohabitate with tuna. So the tuna need these birds. Yeah. The birds need the tuna to bring the bait ball up. It's just an interesting bird I've always because when we were kids in around May, the, before the first big uh, storm front of the year. They would fledge, so they'd leave their burrow as chicks yeah. and learn to fly. Yeah. So they'd come across from another island and land on our island for a night or two. Yeah. So they'd be walking around the camp at night and you'd get in your camp and just from a they're pretty, pretty tame um, or like pretty brazen. Yeah, they're, um, yeah, they're just doing what they're doing, you know. Yeah. But they're affected by the lights, so the lights would disorientate them. And they'd, yeah. But they'd be waiting for the wind to pick up because they need the wind. 
And if they didn't have a lot of wind that year, they would, if they still had a bit of down, which is fluff, as they have as chicks, they could, once they hit water, they could drown. Oh, right. So catches the water. Catches, soaks up. Yeah. So, yeah, that was just a bird that was around when we were kids, and I just became really interested in it. Yeah. And not only fishing, you had to look at something else to yeah, yeah. just naturally like nature. Yeah. I was going to also just ask if, um, in your experience growing up in Geraldton, um, and do you know much about the Yamaji relationship with the Abrolhos Islands, or, um, no, or, no. or do you have any relationship with like the no, local it's population something, up there? Um, just, just people through more my nana's side who were farmers. Yeah. yeah it's still a family connection done kangaroo shooting with one of my dad's mates. Yeah. I don't ever go shooting with him. Yeah. It's probably more his place to take a kangaroo. But we yeah. just take get him to eat. Yeah. Taught me how to shoot him, gut them and stuff like that. Yeah. But as far as the islands, I don't think that's even been touched on that subject. Yeah. Because it was part of the mainland once. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm, I'm really curious to find out what there sort of is, stories. And... I think there is a family that does coral farming. Okay. They must have the heritage because they got um, a license, aquaculture license. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, they could probably tell you more about that. Because, you know, much like, um, much like Rajamup, you know, there's this kind of, you know, I mean, Wajimup obviously being a much more heavily populated tourist kind of place, but with this really dark history that wasn't sort of like mentioned. Um, obviously, the Rebellus doesn't have that same, you know, it wasn't, it was not known that it's a prison, prison island or whatever, but there's those stories that, about, you know, um, there's all sorts of stories about Wajimup in terms of not just, you know, the sort of history, the, the prison history, but the, like the older stories, the Dreamtime stories and about where it sort of came from and stories that have survived for 20,000 years, oral history that still exists from when there was kind of like ice ages and I'm, I'm really curious to find out if there's any kind of um, similar stories about, about, the, uh, about the umbrellas. It's a, um, how it grows your contact there, uh, the historian. Oh, yeah, the guy who sent me, yeah. Um, he would definitely know or could pass you on to someone who could tell me more. Um, but no, nah, just not myself. I haven't heard really anything. Yeah. As it's its own environment, um, to me it's a very, it'd be a very ancient ecology. There's animals there you don't find on the mainland anymore. Yeah. Um, some of the lizards you find on rotnets, but they're a different colour. Yeah. So they've adapted to change their colour. What, you, some of the lizards you find on rotnets that you same as the abrolhos? Yeah. Yeah, right. King's, okay. king's skinks. Yeah, right. Um, they're darker on rotnets. Yeah. Abrolhos, they have like a creamy white spot. Yeah. And they're black, but they're lighter. Do you, do you photograph the lizards as well? Yeah, I've photographed most of the wildlife of the brothers that have yeah. been islands I've been on. I yeah. have got all these photos on Flickr. Yeah. Flickr website. Yeah. What's your Flickr website? Um, it goes flickr.com forward slash photos. I oh, know, sorry. Yeah, photos forward slash Callum Bats 
forward slash photos. Yeah. Forward slash Callum. That's B A T T S. Yeah. Forward slash sets. S E T S. Cool. Should come up. Check it out. Um, yeah. There's one album on there. Forget the name. Small body of water. No. Small body of land, large body of water. Something. That's the obvious yeah. ones. Yeah. Is um. Did, did, were you attracted to going to work on Majima because of your experience in working on, like, is it was it yeah. for the birds or for? Well, to come to Perth, I need to be somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not real big on cities. I like Fremantle because it's kind of like home a bit. Yeah. Geraldton. But I read about the history. This was eight years ago. And yeah, the wildlife really. That's why. I went there. Yeah. A bit more simple living. Yeah. I like about islands, so yeah, a bit more slow, laid back pace. Yeah, yeah, cities. I'm pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, I've only just recently learned how to use trains. Shit, <laughs> 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 I think I was 24 when I first caught the train. Yeah, right. On my own, I used to pay for day riders because I didn't know how to use the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I only found out what AirPods were this year off the Yeah. I thought people were talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to Hay Street when I was 24. Yeah. Because I was... I took three years off fishing and lived off the money I made in two seasons. Yeah. Just to take photos of birds and stuff and wildlife. Wow. So I was living in a tent at Esperance, went to Woody Island, went to Flinders Island, Tasmania. Yeah, back to your roles. So island life, you live an island life. Well, I just like them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one, from the age of seven, I mean, that's what got me hooked on it. Yeah. It's just a simple way of living. As I said, we had little basic camps with water tanks, bucket showers, power for a couple of hours a day. Yeah. Did you need anything else, you know? Learn to catch your own food, learn how the, the weather and the natural cycles work so you see different birds you know different times of year living in closer proximity to to those natural cycles and to nature yeah to me that's where the real world is you know yeah yeah I come down here and people tell me all this social stuff and all that I have no idea I don't know body language or (laughs) most of my life I've lived in a kind of isolated way yeah yeah I'm I'm so bad at it (laughs) (laughs) Big groups of people, like where I am at the moment, you know, it's a, it's a resort. I'm just like, try my best, but I'm just pretty quiet at first, and people think probably a bit weird, but yeah, it's just how I am. So I get to know people, I'm not an extroverted person at all. You know? Yeah, we've no. always lived kind of, we grew up in a semi rural area. And when we were real little kids, we lived in these hills out of Jordan, so there's always something outside, and yeah. Nana used to take David out and perform me off the TV, so I think that's yeah, where right. passion started. Oh, man, I think it's ultimately a much healthier way to live, you know? Well, it is. We're part of this thing, and it seems yeah. the world's in an urbanisation at the moment, and it'll collapse eventually. And into, into this kind of process of disconnection from... That's you know, right, yeah. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. 
For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.